lost without you. I thank you that you continue to pursue us. You continue to show patience toward us when we especially do not deserve it. Thank you for the covenant of God that you established, Lord. We ask that you would unveil that in our heart. Holy Spirit, that we might see Jesus more and more. That great man would be revealed by the spirit of truth. that our knee would bow and our tongue would confess all over again that he is Lord he's my Messiah he's my King he's my Father, my friend he's my God we bless you Lord we bless you we thank you started real quick if y'all you all bear with me hey guys how are you <laughs> it's good to see you y'all too <laughs> um anna come on up here so anna's been coming to church here for what a couple years now right and uh so yeah she's been coming for a while and uh she's she uh, came to me the other day she said you know i really don't think we've ever officially made covenant with you guys and and so she wanted to do that and um, we're going to pray over her. So those of you who have made covenant with us and, and um, have been with us, you come forward and just lay hands on her. And we're going to receive her in and bless her and, and um, welcome her as, a, I guess, an official part. You know, she's already been a part of our family here for a while. But we just want to um, honor you publicly. And um, we take covenant here very seriously. It's not like church membership. It's literally a where you go, I go. Your God's my God. Your people are my people. And and uh, we treat it like family, not like church, because uh, we really don't want to um, have an organization. We want to have a, a family structure. So let's just pray over here. Father, we just thank you for Anna. We bless her, Lord, and we ask that you would just keep her, make your face shine upon her, lift up your countenance upon her, give her shalom, rest, and peace in everything she does, and that, Father, you would cast your eye upon her and that you would cause the things that you've placed in her to come up in, in richness and fullness, that it might bless us and others and that we might be a blessing to her and that corporately we might be a blessing to you, Father, as one in your blood and in your son. We love you. We thank you, Jesus, for her. We bless you for sending her our way. And we ask, Father, for your continued grace upon her heart and life. In your name, we ask this, and we seal it by your blood. Amen. All right. Thank you. pick on you in public. I'll wait till after church.
Um, there's something I want to share with you guys this morning, and it's a repeat of some things I've shared in the past, but we have a lot of new people, and I also feel like some of the people who have heard this need a refresher because God has had me in the last three weeks go back to some foundational things that I feel like need to be established in the church. And I think in a day and an era where we're starstruck with new revelation, we sometimes forget the thing that's solid, is, is that really seats us and grounds us in what God caused art beginning to be in and if we get away from that too much then we begin to almost have a spooky spiritual version of christianity and we miss the the core substance and structure of what god established in the beginning and why we are where we are today and where his plan is taking us and so sometimes to revisit those issues is very important but i really feel like today i want to um i want to go back and touch on some things that are that are very foundational with covenant what the Lord, the Lord has done for us and what he's made in us and um, the peace that he's established there and the aggression in which he establishes that covenant I, I don't think we realize what it costs him to make that covenant I'm not just talking about the cross okay that was a huge part of the final exclamation point to to his promise to us but you're talking about a God who endured 6,000 years of humanity and stayed faithful to us every single moment, even when we were not faithful to him. And I can't imagine that, you know, right? We were talking last night, Brian and, and Zach and I, and, and it's just like, you know, we get tired of our neighbor within about six weeks. Imagine God dealing with humanity 6,000 years of the same old stuff over and over and over again. And he never grew impatient. He never turned his back on us. That's good for us, right? Because if our forefathers would have screwed up too bad and he would have wiped us all out, we would have never been here. Thank God for patience, right? Thank God he doesn't have patience. Thank God he is patience. Amen? Love is patient. That's what love is. God is love. Love doesn't possess patience. Love is patience. With me? All right, so I want you to turn to, let's see, where we're going to go first. We have quite a few scriptures to go through, and I really want to uh, make this as, as concise as possible, but it's a broad topic, so please bear with me and try to focus if you can, okay? All right. Those of you who come to church here know that means it's going to be a long message. Okay. I'm just getting that out of the way right off the bat. Let's go to, let's go to Matthew 4. And I'm going to jump around before we actually get there. I'm just going to give you time to land there. The covenant of God is God's ferocity to address the issue with sin and man. And so when God makes a covenant, he, he makes a promise. And that promise is as sure as his existence is. It cannot ever be moved and it can never be taken away. And so what, what we call covenant is something that in the modern day culture, we don't even understand that. In fact, the, the closest thing we can get to that is a marital covenant. And that is so cheap and loose in this day and age that we don't even get what that word really means. Because if it doesn't work out, you just divorce somebody and move on. And that's not the essence of what covenant means. <clears throat> and so when God establishes a covenant, it's forever. That goes beyond your life into your kids, into your grandkids, into your grandkids' kids if Jesus tarries. It never quits. It never stops. It is what it is, and it never, it never ends. It endures because he cannot break his promise. It's who he is, right? And there are certain covenants that are more important than others that he's made with us in the Bible. So if you've made it to Matthew 4, just hold your place there. But I want to read you Psalm 105, verse 8. It says, he has remembered his covenant for forever. 
Now, I want to set a stage for you because if, I don't, if I'm not sharing this right here with you right now, you're not going to get where I'm going in the future, okay? So you've got to understand how sure this is because this directly affects you, and it's going to make sense here in a minute. So bear with me as I ramp up, okay? He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. It's not, a, it's not an option. It's a command into a thousand generations. He's remembered it forever, which covenant he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, and he confirmed the same thing to Jacob for a law unto Israel for an everlasting covenant. That's impressive. Not only God did confirm it to all three patriarchs, but he commanded it also to go beyond those, those gentlemen into our life and stay for forever. So what covenant is he talking about? It's important to know that if something lasts that long and it's that important to Abba, what is it he has made covenant with? What is the thing that he made the promise about? Because if we miss that, it doesn't matter how important the covenant is, we miss the covenant itself. You with me? You need to understand why God made covenant with you and, and how sure that actually is because that gives you the ability to be in the faith you say you claim. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? You probably don't, but you will in a minute. Okay. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16, it says, To deliver you from a strange woman, right? Even from a stranger which is flattered from her words, which forsakes the God of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. You say, well, how does that connect with everything you just said? Because when you have a covenant between a man and a woman, it's a union that cannot be broken. And what Proverbs chapter 2 is telling us is that when this crazy woman decides to forget God and forget the covenant that she made with God, then she falls into sin. In other words, the direct correlation to her immorality is into the direct correlation to how she forgot the covenant that God made her. You with me? If we don't understand the covenant of God, we're going to be that type of bride where we're wandering around lover to lover, whether it's a religious lover or a doctrinal lover or an immoral lover. You understand what I'm saying? God does not want to share us with anything, even a quote-unquote denominational religion. And I'm not against denominations. I'm just saying that those things can be so secure in us that we miss the covenant that God made and we forget why he did what he did and we don't need to be that kind of bride for him. You with me? Does that make sense? Okay. So listen, we have to pray from the platform which God made because if we pray from that platform, everything else God began to order is going to come into our life. If we get out of sight of that order, nothing's going to occur and happen. There's so much, so much of Christianity that is, that is done out of order, which is why it's so reckless and it doesn't work. And people think, well, I tried that. Well, you tried it, but you tried it also out of order, right? I tried loving my wife. Why don't you try loving God with all your heart first, and then you can love your wife, right? Well, I can't get my kids in line. That's because your kids are idols, and your kids are more important than your husband, and you got out of order, and that's why your kids won't obey. You set an idol up and you get outside of the order of God, the whole thing of Christianity comes crashing down because God establishes certain things to be certain ways and you can't call it holy and rearrange it and slap the name Jesus on it and make it okay. You have to do things his way, but when you pray within the platform of God and you, you walk and structure your mind and your, thought, your thoughts in the thing that God established from the beginning, then you begin to operate in the original intention that Abba created for you to operate in and ruling and reigning in this life. Does that make sense to you? We have to begin to play from that platform. All right, so the covenant that God made, it, it came before your fragmentation. Do you understand that? God's covenant that he made with Abraham came before you were ever broken, before you were ever a sinner, before you were even created. His covenant outlasts and predates 
your immorality, your existence, your pains, your failures, your futures, all the things that have happened in your life. What God established in Genesis 15, it was more secure and more sealed than, than you even realized because you weren't even around to see it yet. Why is that important? Because that covenant is the foundation in which he places you on. It predates you. It predates your life, your problems, your scenarios, your circumstances, your issues, your marriage problems, your finances. It predates all of those things. And God places us upon something that is enduring for a thousand generations until the end of time because God cannot lie. This is the foundation in which he built the church of Jesus Christ, which is the covenant promise that he made with Abraham. You with me? What was that covenant? Everybody's like, oh, it was the covenant of faith. No, the covenant was received by faith. That wasn't the covenant. You with me? What was the covenant that God made with Abraham? That's what we need to understand. Because if we miss that, we miss the, we miss the genesis of, of, his, of his intention. You understand this? Do you realize that more people, more modern day Christians, are infatuated with the Mosaic covenant than they are the Abrahamic covenant? I'm not saying the Mosaic covenant is bad, but Jesus came to fulfill that. He fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant and finalized the Abrahamic Covenant. You get the difference? What was the covenant? Anybody curious now? <laughs> okay. I'm hoping I'm keeping your attention here. Real quick, Romans 11.27, it says, This is my covenant that I make with them. Right? When I cut away their sins. Alright? That word take away means to cut and it's indicative of what the circumcision covenant that God had with Abraham to secure this covenant he made with him in Genesis 15 to cut away so in the Old Testament our bodies were cut on to, to reveal the covenant of God but in the New Testament his body was cut to finalize that covenant you with me? alright so what I'm talking about is the covenant of sonship it's the covenant that God made to bring you into the family of God under the covenant of, that he made with Abraham by faith. With me? This covenant basically means that he's bringing you into his family before you were ever even away from him. His acceptation of you was before your rejection of him. You with me? So why are you depressed all the time? Why are you worried? Why are you concerned? There's a, there's a big difference between Christianity and sonship. Big difference. In fact, I can only find the word Christianity in the Bible twice, maybe three times. Because Jesus never called us Christians. That's the, world, that's the term the world gave us because they couldn't define God in people. <laughs> they, couldn't, they didn't know how to articulate God being fully housed in a human being. And it confused them. So they said, well, they're like Christ. They're like the Messiah. And then we took that term. You know what Jesus calls us? Sons. You know why that's important? It's important because it gives you access to everything that Jesus has access to. It doesn't keep you on the outside. It puts you in the center of the issue. It puts you right smack dab in the middle of the covenant of God, whether you think you're worthy to be there or not. You with me? Okay. So, so Christianity chases and pursues those things that sons naturally possess. I'll let that hang there for a second. 
Christianity pursues and chases those things that sons naturally possess. In other words, Christians try to be holy and righteous enough for God so they can be accepted by God. Sons know they're accepted by God, therefore they're holy and righteous. Everybody, both, both parties want the end result. Sons realize they were born with the result and they grow up into it. Christians are still trying to obtain, obtain it and receive it. Does that make sense? This is why works-based religion operates so well in 21st century America because we have operated under a mosaic understanding of sin without the understanding of acceptation before the sin. God's covenant to release you from your sin came before your sin. Why are you worried about your sin? When you understand who you are, then that will grow and then you'll stop sinning. That's the way it works. Okay, see, okay, let me say it this way. God didn't die to give you something to believe in. He died to give you something to become. Big difference. Religion is believing in something. Sonship is becoming that something. My kids didn't ask to be born. They just were. Because I chose. Not them. We chose to have children. They have to grow up into the nature that they naturally possess, true or not. They don't have to try to be my children. They don't have to perform for me to gain my acceptance. We chose them before they ever arrived. True or not. Anybody else had kids? You wanted them before they ever existed. You didn't may know all the things that you got into, but you wanted them before they ever arrived. This is the same thing with us and the Lord. I wanted them so bad to sing that back to us when they were singing that song, My Heart Burns for You. I was like, man, that is God. That's exact. I was bawling. Because I heard God singing that over you guys. I heard God say, My heart burns for you. And we're still trying to gain this guy's approval, and he's already infatuated with it. This is why it's very foundational. If you build on anything else, you're going to be able. You're not going to be able to understand anything. So go ahead and put that slide up there, Jacob, for me, if you wouldn't mind. If you've had a chance to make that yet. All right. So listen, God. God is not a Christian. I hate to break it to you. Jesus wasn't a Christian. Okay. I. You know, I was saying that way before it was popular. First time I ever said that was like 20 years ago, and everybody looked at me like, "Oh my God, I can't believe you just said that." Should we stone him or praise him? I have no idea. Now it's a pretty popular saying, but it's true. And if he's not a Christian, then technically, neither am I. I mean, you can call me that if you want. I'll respond to anything. I won't react to everything, though. I'm a son. That's what I am. Why? Because a son supersedes the apostolic, the prophetic, the evangelical, the pastoral, and the teaching. Why? Because Jesus did all, all five. Didn't he? Because he was a son. Do we still have offices and still have all those types of things? Absolutely. But you know what I'd rather be known by? Being a son. Not a pastor, not a prophet, not an apostle, not a teacher, not an evangelist. See, those are the things I do. A son is who I am. You realize that you're not going to need apostles and prophets and pastors and evangelists and teachers in heaven? 
Who are you going to teach? Jesus? <laughs> See, we, we mistake what we do for who we are. In fact, when we meet somebody, the first thing we say is, what do you do? Why? Because that's, we associate them with what's what, who they are is what they do. No, this is what we do in Christianity. What you do for God is not who he made you to be. Who he made you to be is the epicenter of what should flow out of you in what you do. Jesus performed miracles. That's what he did. Who he was is a son. You know what we're more impressed with? Miracles. We'll run to someone who can perform miracles, but we will stay away from a son because a son is very confident. A son will bra is brash. A son will, will break you and grate you and love you and hurt you and help you at the same time. And this is what Jesus looked at many of his followers and like, you're not following me because of me. You're following me because of what I can do for you. And this is our version of Christianity today. Most people turn to God in the beginning because of what God can do for them because they got themselves in a horrible hole and they don't realize that God has already turned toward them not because of, of them needing to be pulled out of sin but because he's infatuated and he loves them before they ever screwed up. So God's plan of rescue came before you ever even needed it. And it wasn't because you needed to be rescued. It's because he wanted you restored back to him even before you left. You get this point. Which means it really doesn't matter what you do wrong. It, what matters is, is, is letting, letting him do what's right. Because that will change you and then you'll eventually stop doing wrong. Holiness preaching without relationship, intimacy, and covenant is just religion. Because you're telling people to perform things they can't do on their own. And then they just quit. Or put a big mask on and become arrogant. You understand what I'm saying? Sons are his intention. That's why when he sent help from heaven, he sent a son. He didn't send an angel, did he? No. Angels don't help men in that way. They can help us in our circumstances, but they cannot help the situation of our identity and our rescue. When God chose to rescue man, he sent a son. Why? Because it takes a son to save a son. And when I say son, I'm including the feminine. I know our culture is not into that. But I say this all the time when I preach this message. If men can be the bride of Christ, then you ladies can be sons. It's okay. Don't get offended, all right? I'm a bride, you're a son. Just get over it. <laughs> these terms are important because if we don't establish these things in our heart and our mind, then we're going to build on something else. So the first thing that has to happen in Christianity is something that God does, which is right up here. If you take this order out of place and you move anything around anywhere, the whole building collapse. It collapses. If we don't understand the covenant that God made, then sonship means nothing. And if we don't understand what sonship means, there is no way we're going to be the church. And if we're not the church, there is absolutely no way we're going to expand and plant the kingdom of God. But you know what we do? We want to run to a conference and hear about the kingdom. We want to hear about all the little intricacies of the kingdom of God and all these revelations, these little you know, things that make us go, wow, that's really cool. I can impress a lot of people with that one. Truth is, they don't care anyway. And we want to learn all these things, but we don't even know who our own identity is. And I'm not talking about just flat sonship because, listen, you can't claim to be a son. You have to be a son. Claiming to be a son doesn't make you a son. Being a son makes you a son. My kids don't go around going, I'm his son. They just naturally know that and they have nothing to prove. That's how you know when you're a son. You don't have to tell people about it. People see it. They know it. If you have to tell somebody you're a son of God, 
they probably don't see it. There's a big difference between claiming a theological accuracy on sonship versus naturally and organically being the thing. Jesus didn't have to strive to be a son. He just naturally was. That's what made it so powerful is he organically just moved through life as God would move through life. He did life. He did our life the way God would do it. And he didn't have to fight and struggle and strive to do so. If you have to fight and struggle and strive to be a Christian, you have missed the point. And I, I say this with a little asterisk that I'll hopefully follow it up with. But God doesn't care about your sin. Why? Because he believes in his blood. He believes in the power of his cross to take care of it. He's not concerned by it. What he's concerned by is that you won't give it up. He's not, you know, flabbergasted at the fact that you committed some evil thing. He knew what you were going to do before you ever did it. And he made the covenant anyway. Does this make sense? Sons are his intention. What he made you to be, not do. You don't need to work for God. You need to work with him. Ministry is not working for God. It's working with God. It's letting who God made you be naturally just come out at Walmart. Just being you and stop walking in fear. And not comparing yourself to someone else. The way you talk to the guy at Walmart in the line is going to be different than the way I do. Because we're all unique sons. He's the only begotten, the standard of all sonship, but we're the unique individual ones. All bearing an image of, of who Abba is. Right? Like, you don't want me leading worship. I promise you. It's not, it's not, it's, I'm not that son. You with me? God wants his family back. You know, the Bible's simple, guys. I can sum up an entire theological class with just that statement. God wants his family back. That's the Bible. Genesis to Revelation. That's the Bible. He wants his family back. God made a family. He lost a family. He spent the most of the Bible trying to regain the family. Then he restored the family. Now he's trying to get the family to believe in the restoration he did. That's the Bible. That's the gospel. It's simple. Anything outside of that's not a true gospel. Anything that complicates it more than that is it's in excess. Paul even said, I don't want you to be fooled and be pulled away from the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he did all this for us. He made us. What you don't understand is that your struggles are just more of growth pains than they are failures. But you, you take your failures as identification factors instead of just growth issue. Because you believe more in the power of your sin than the power of his blood. And you won't tell me that theologically because you know that's wrong, but that's how you act. Because as soon as you screw up, then you go into mully grub land and you don't come out for six weeks. And then the body's got to come in and be like, hey, stop. Come on. Get up. Well, I'm not worthy. And then who is? What, like if you hadn't have failed there, you would have been worthy? 
That's a, that's a dumb thought. John 1.12, it says, To as many as received him, he gave them power to become Christians. I, did, I got it wrong? Is that wrong? He gave them power to become sons. Do you think God has a different definition for Jesus being a son and you a different definition of being a son? And that, that, that this one's this, this horrible, dejected, self-mutilating, uh, arrogant, prideful, needing constant uh, pacifiers in their mouth. And then Jesus is over here. Like, no, what God calls a son is what he calls a son. And that's Jesus. He sent Jesus to be the definite factor, the definitive factor of what it means to be a son of God. And when Jesus gave us the power to become a son, he gave us the ability to do so. Because we were not born by flesh, we were born by spirit. I said this a few weeks ago, do you realize that you were conceived spiritually the same way Jesus was? You were born the same way. You were overshadowed by the Holy Ghost. True or not? The spirit of life came inside of you. And birthed something in you. The same way that was birthed in Mary. Listen, you were born the same way God was. Why? Why are we so out there? Right? Okay. I lied. Genesis 15. I'll turn there. Keep your finger in Matthew 4. We got we to go over the covenant real quick before I take you to Matthew 4. Okay. Genesis 15 is where God makes one of the most important covenants in the Bible. Uh, let's see here. Where am I at? All right. Okay, so it says here, uh, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Now, this is the, this is the start of God's covenant to, to man, okay? This is where God changes everything, literally everything. Came to Abraham in a vision saying, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. And I don't really like that translation. It says this. It says, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield, and I am your reward. Before he promised anything to Abraham, he made it clear. He made it clear what the reward was. True or not? Who's the reward? What does he own? And he's your reward. Before he establishes covenant, he establishes the value of the covenant. Which is who? It's him. Don't be afraid. I'm your shield. This is our father, Abraham, right? Remember that? Father Abraham, you always sing it better than me. Jeannie, you want to do that for me? No? He's our father, right? In a vision, he, he sees and he says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Your reward will be great. I am your reward is what he's saying. Okay? That's how it starts off. And Abraham said, 
It doesn't matter what you're going to give me. What, what are you going to give me? It doesn't matter because I have nobody to pass it on to. This is, an, this is a Hebraic mindset. American mindsets are like, give me, give me, give me, and I'm going to spend it before my kids can get it. And in, in, in an ancient Hebrew mindset, it was whatever they got, they had to understand. They knew that this has to be carried forward because the Messiah has to come. We have to create a people. We have to have a place in the world. We have to, be, we have to establish a culture that rep- represents Yahweh. And our, and our kids were everything, not idols, but they were everything. They had to pass everything they, they learned, they would, tr- they would desperately try to put into their children. So he said, look, what do you, it doesn't matter what you give me, I, I don't have a child. Next verse. And Abraham says, he says, since you have no, you've been no offspring, no one born in my house is my heir, right? And he's like, I've got this kid, Eliezer, and in, in verse 3, he says, you've given me no seed. And then God comes to him in verse 4 and says, Eliezer is not going to be your heir, but one that will come from your own bowels will be in your air. Get that. You will have a son. In other words, you will have a son who is just like you. Remember when God told um, Adam and he told Noah, be fruitful and what? Multiply. Multiply what? Themselves. Right? Just like you. Multiply. You ever see somebody look like, they look just like their dad? You're like, dang. Why? Because that's what God intended to do. You're going to have a son just like you. Who's Abraham's son? You look just like him. To God, you look just like Abraham. Everybody who believes by faith looks just like Abraham. Well, I don't feel like it. It don't matter. doesn't matter. God takes him out in verse 5. He says, look up to the heaven. Tell the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your seed be. Listen, verse 6. He believed the Lord, and because of that faith, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Before the law, before Moses, righteousness established, not just by faith, but by believing in the covenant of God. Right? Faith in what? In God? No, he, he already had faith in God. <laughs> he already had faith in God. God met him face to face. He knew God. It was faith in his covenant. Faith in the covenant that what God was going to, what he was going to promise, he was going to keep. The faith that he was going to provide that promise, and it was going to happen. He believed God that it was going to happen. Why can't you believe God for the same covenant of salvation that Jesus gave you, the same way Abraham believed God, that he was counted faithful, that he would provide for those things? It cost God everything to establish this covenant to you. You darn be well sure he's going to keep it. Let me just say it this way. You're not big enough to screw it up. But you are big enough to not enter it. You can't mess it up. Mickey, you can choose to stay out of it. Okay? So he says, oh, verse 7, he says, And I said it to him, and he said it to him, Lord, uh, I'm the Lord that brought you out of, the, out of Ur of Chaldeas. To give you this land to inherit it. And the, and, and the Lord said, this is how you know that you're going to inherit it. And he says this. He says in verse 9. Go there if you can. He says, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female, go a three-year-old ram, a turtle, and a pigeon. This is something I have to establish real quick. I'm trying to hurry. 
when, when, when an Old Testament issue like this in predated Babylonian times, whenever they wanted to make a covenant with somebody else, and some of you guys know me know this, they, this is exactly how they would do it. They would make a promise. They would find a ditch, and they would take these animals and slice them in half and put one half on one side of the ditch and one half on the other side of the ditch, and the blood would run down the center. And what happens was both parties would walk through that blood barefoot, one side to the other. And then when they got to the other side, they turn and look at each other and say, if I don't keep my promise, you do this to me. So when God told Abraham to do that, Abraham knew exactly what was about to happen. God's going to make a promise with me. And he's going to walk through that blood. And i got to walk through it too. And here's the thing. So Abraham did it. He took all these things, divided them in midst, and placed them against each other on the other side. And he, but the birds he did not divide. It's another sermon. And when the fowls of the air came upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. There's, I'm going to come back to that verse, but you have to understand one thing. When, whenever God begins to make a covenant with you, you had better protect it from the things that are trying to steal it from you. And those birds of the air are the demonic voices in your head telling you how unworthy you are to be a son in the first place. And you better chase those things off or they will take from you the thing that God died to give you. When sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. Imagine that. The last time that happened in the Bible, something was created, wasn't it? Woman was. God expanded himself. So when the same thing happens, this deep sleep falls on Abraham. Why? Because he's about to give birth to a son. He's about to be impregnated with something that's going to come out of him later. God's going to do something in this moment and keep his promise the same way he's going to do in you. You with me? And a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abraham, know for sure that you're going to be a stranger in the land and all these other things. Let's jump down to verse 17. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, this is where God establishes covenant. What happened when Jesus was hanging on the cross right before he died? Got dark, didn't it? You know why? Because that's where God establishes covenant. When it's hard and things are difficult and it doesn't look very good, that's when, he's, that's when he shines the most. That's when he's there for you. That's when he's the one taking the, the ship. That's the one he's taking the driver's seat. That's when he's saying, I'll do this. Because here's exactly what happens. When the sun came down and it was dark, a smoking furnace. Now listen, what went, what before, went before Israel in the wilderness? Fire and, a, and smoke, right? What happens here? The smoking fire and a, and, a, and a smoke and fire came down, right? It says this right here. A smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. Do you see the symbology here? It says that that, that, that fire that led Israel in the wilderness was, was Messiah, was Jesus. And this Jesus is here in this form of, of fire and smoke, and he literally walks through this blood one side to the other and tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you purpose. I'm going to give you a reason to live. I'm going to establish something in you. Why? Because all of this is going to come to pass, and I'm going to rescue my people, and they're going to be my sons too. He walks through this thing, and then Abraham, notice, notice in the Bible it says, Abraham didn't do it. He couldn't. Imagine having God say to, to you, you have to walk through this as well. And Abraham says, I, 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 there's no way. And God says, I'll keep it for you. He walks through, keeps that promise for him, comes through the other side, and he says, 
The same day, verse 15, to Abraham, I've made covenant with you. Unto your seed I've given this land, unto the river of Egypt, unto the great river Euphrates. Now, parabolically, that's the moment you come out of sin until the time you come into the glory land. Why? Because Egypt represents sin. The Euphrates is a river that was represented as the Garden of Eden. And so God says, in the moment you come out of sin and out of Egypt, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You're going to be my son. You're going to be my people. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a purpose. And nothing's going to change that. And when you come to heaven with me, it will finalize everything. This is the covenant that God made with us, that we are the sons of God, which means you have the ultimate authority and power that Jesus had in this earth. Well, why don't I see it? Probably because you don't believe as much as you think you do, or you have a ton of faith and you're just using it for doubt instead of, instead of faith. You realize that, that you can use your faith for unbelief? You've been given power and authority to speak things into existence. And you guys know how, how words hurt, right? Well, why do you think saying you know, horrible things to other people, you know the power of that, but you won't admit the power of the release of the covenant of God in your life? Does this make sense to you? I just breezed through that. There's more there. I don't have time. God, has, he wants his family back. This is the covenant he establishes with us in Genesis 15. That he says, look, it doesn't matter what you've done or where you're going. I'm going to seat this before you ever get there. And I'm calling you my son. And I'm calling you my own. And I'm restoring you as, my, as, your, as, as your, your identity as my child in this earth. And I'm going to give you sons and land. Why? Because it's about covenant, sonship, church, and then the kingdom. If you try to build a church without an identity and without sonship and without a covenant, you're going to screw everything up and you're never going to be able to perform kingdom issues. Most of the time, the people trying to perform kingdom-relevant issues and demonstrations of power aren't convinced of their own identity. They'll claim it theologically, but they aren't convinced of their own identity, and then they wonder why the kingdom demonstration doesn't happen. Listen, the devils don't care if you theologically agree that you're a son. That does not impress them. What they don't like is someone who really responds like one. And you know the greatest form of response a son can give is laying down their life for someone who doesn't deserve it. That's what scares hell. When you're willing to serve your wife when she's being a rear end. When you're willing to lay down your life for someone who you don't like. Because you know how Abba sees them. You with me? This is the thing that threatens the powers of darkness. It's not theological conformity or regurgitation of truth. The devil's not scared because you can theorize God. He is scared that you're actually going to believe the covenant God made with you because when you finally believe that covenant, all the oppressive doubt and thoughts and things that are in your head that he's kept you pinned down by for all those years are going to break off and fall off of you and then you're going to rise up and walk away from him. That's what he's afraid of. He's using your own sin to hold you captive to something God sets you free from. The covenant was about sons and land. That's what it was about. Identity and kingdom. The kingdom is the new land of God. It's what Jesus came to establish in the earth. Kingdom. He demonstrated it and established it. You with me? Because he was a son. Because that's what sons do. They naturally establish kingdom relevance. 
Sons just naturally build the kingdom as they go. The first message he ever preached. Repent because the kingdom is here. Why? Because a true son is here. The devil does not want you getting the truth of your identity because the moment you do, that's when sonship is going to be established. And the moment sonship is established in you by faith, the kingdom is going to be born in that moment. And he loses land. It's easier for him to keep you under doubt and depression and self-hate than it is to lose you to the reality of the expanse of what God had to go through to make you one of his children. And so that way you could bring that same kingdom power to your realm, to your Walmart line. Not because you get inundated with a theological truth, but it's something that I'm saying goes deep inside of you and your spirit goes, yes! And it stands up in agreement and it begins to grow. Next week, I'm probably going to have to teach the difference between weos and technon. But for this week, know that you're a son. Okay. Hosea 1.10, it says, The number of the children of Israel will be, as, will be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered. And it will come to pass that in that place, as it was said to them that you are not my people, this shall be said to them that you are the sons of the living God. This is what God calls us in the Old Testament. This is the prophecy predating the actual event of Jesus coming down. It says that these people who were not my children are now going to be able to say that I am the sons of God. Okay. Matthew three seventeen. What, what happened as soon as Jesus comes out of this preparatory period, which we do have to have in son, as walking as sons? What happened? The first thing that, that, that is stated as a as a confirmation from heaven: This is my beloved son. You realize that? How many of you guys think that you know when you're in ministry and you're praying for people and they're getting saved and healed, you're doing good with the Lord? No, you're not going to raise your hands. You know that's a trick question. Y'all are smart. Everybody kept your hands down. You did good. Saved your, saved your uh, reputation there, man. But that's how we feel, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's how we feel. You feel like whenever you made, oh, I got someone saved, or man, I really, we had this revival, and all these people got baptized. And you think that has something to do with you and how great you are and, and how right with God you are? You, you, you're so wrong. And so how can you say that? You know why? Because whenever Jesus got into those baptismal waters, right? The first time when John the Baptist, remember that? He gets baptized. What happens? The voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my son in whom I well please. Let me ask you this. According to scripture, how many miracles did Jesus do before that point? Zero. Well, you mean God can be pleased with him without having done nothing? Yeah, because he's a son. Fathers are naturally pleased with their kids. Even when they don't do anything. Of course, he was walking in integrity and holiness and purity and righteousness and all those types of things, but it was because of who he was. When you realize who God made you to be, then you realize that you have the power and the authority to hold out the holiness you were always told. You better be holy. Now it's, more, it's, it's not a, it's not a, a, a command. It's a, it's a reaction. You with me? There's only two times in the, in the Bible where, where Lucifer himself shows up to mankind. Did you make it to Matthew 4? 
Can we put that up there, Jacob? Matthew 4. Let's, uh... Guys, I'm giving you the condensed version this morning. Okay? This is a huge teaching. Let's just start in verse 1. Straight out of coming out of those waters when he hears, this is my beloved son. The sonship has been established. God is saying, this is what it looks like to be a son on the earth. This is my, my, con, uh, my confirmation on what this means. This guy's the, the, the standard. He's the rule. He's the one. You look at him. You watch him. And I'm pleased with him even before he's done anything. Anything. The Spirit takes him to the wilderness. Why? Because the Spirit of God will always take sons to where God's enemies reside. You want a nice version of Christianity? Don't claim sonship. You claim, start claiming to be a son. You start trying to step into that. Exactly what's going to happen is God's going to say, okay, you're my solution to the world's problems. I'm going to send you where the problems are. Everybody's Christians are like, oh, God, fix this country. Oh, God, fix my church. He's like, wait, wait, wait. my solution is you. You're there. Why don't you fix it? You're my son. I put you there. Not so that you can complain about what you're seeing when you're there. I put you there because I already saw it before you got there, and I expect you to do something about it. But, but you know what we do? We, we still, as, while claiming to be sons, we still address God like Christians do, like God's way out there, and we got to get him to come down into our environment to fix all this stuff. No, he came into your environment already through you in your heart. Well, God fixed my marriage. Well, is God in you or not? Well, then maybe try serving like Jesus served and be a son. And maybe your marriage will slowly get fixed. But it's taken forever. Jesus prepared for 30 years. Quit whining. <laughs> what? You got, you got time. promise you. Your date's already set to die. Why are you worried about it? You're going to die on that day. Nothing's going to kill you in between. You might as well just work on what God wants you to work on between now and that point. With me? So Jesus was led up the spirit of the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Two times in scripture where Lucifer himself shows up to mankind. Once in Adam, once in Jesus. Why? Because there's one thing that threatens hell, and that's a true son of God. Christians do not threaten the devil. Most of the time they're his puppets. A son will ring a bell in hell, and hell will come running. Because there's... When a son shows up, you got to kill him, and you got to kill him fast because they spread like wildfire. You can't stop them. You can't control them. You can't contain them. You, sh you surely can't shut them up. Every time you try to trap them, they find a way out. Every time you try to trick them, they end up turning the table on you. They're full of wisdom and grace and power and holiness and truth. Everything they bleed comes out of them. It changes people's lives. It wrecks their minds. It throws their theologies on the ground. Sons wreck the kingdom of the world. They're not afraid to die. They're not afraid to lose. They're not afraid to fail. Everything about them screams Messiah Jesus because they live and breathe for one man only and not the applause of men or they don't fear hell or anything else. This is why the devil will show up at some point in your life if you truly step into what it means to be a son of God. And he will test, push, and prod you on everything that you can, he can possibly because the, the quickest way to kill something is when it's new. What happened when Jesus was born? Try to kill him. What happened when Moses was born? Try to kill him. Why? Because when deliverers show up, the easiest way to take them out is right when they're conceived. 
Why do you think there's so many abortions in our country? Because God has been trying to send us deliverers and sons, and our, our enemy keeps aborting them and killing them. So you know what I pray? Give me the gifts they would have had that I might justify their lack of existence. Let me be their voice. Give me their honor and their power and their gifts, and I will let them rage through the nation. Let their voice be heard through me. Let the gifts that they would have had be released through us. Right? Because God loves His sons. And those people did not get a chance to impact this life. So because God is just and favorable, I believe He can give us what they would have had. And we can stand and live for them. To establish the kingdom they never got to see. You understand? He fasted 40 days, 40 nights. He was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Understand this. The whole issue of temptation in this entire story wasn't about, it, wasn't about him being a son. It was about getting Jesus to question it. You can make all these little theological arguments and sermonizations on the bread and the temptation and the, all this other stuff. But basically, the bottom line is that hell did not want Jesus to believe who God made him to be. And it's the same thing for you. If he can get you to identify with your sin or the sin of others, then he has taken you out of identification with the covenant of God, which means then the sonship's never going to happen, and then the church is never going to be built, and then the kingdom's never going to be established. So in one fell swoop, by getting you to believe something that isn't true, the devil completely stops the entire platform of God being built in the earth. And so you'll stay home from church because you don't feel like it or you hurt or you this or you that or you blah, 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 blah because it's all about you whenever this whole thing is actually about you being something that God intended to express to the nations. And he did not make sons to hide in the fig leaves and the shadows. He made them to come and walk with him in the light. This is why God pursued Adam and Eve even after they sinned. He came looking for them because he wasn't ashamed of them. They were ashamed of themselves. And we superimpose and transpose our, our ashamed uh, nature onto him. And we assume that he feels the same way about us as we feel about ourselves. That's from hell. Because why would God pursue someone who just screwed everything up? He could have killed them from a distance. But he came and pursued them because they were his children. And he knew that out of their loins were going to come us People he longed for, dreamt about, stayed up at night, if you would, uh, waiting for us to show up because he longed to be there with us. I cried at every one of my kids' births. And I'm, I promise you, the moment I came to Jesus, God shed a tear. Yeah, I got another one back. I'm not going to lose him for Don't tell me he doesn't feel deeper than you do. Like you somehow have a greater ability to feel emotion than God does. Like somehow your pain affects you deeper than it affects him. He goes through everything you go through. He feels everything you feel. Depression, doubt, unbelief, hate, self-hate, self-mutilization. He feels it all. 
And he's just like, you ever watch your kids suffer and you can't do anything about it? And you're like, man, would you stop saying such negative things about yourself? I tell that to my kids and I hear God say the same thing. Like, oh man. Right? Bottom line, because we identify with the nature of Adam and sin more than the nature of the covenant of God that he established. Why did I sit here in the beginning and, and, and preface all the boring teaching that I had to do in the beginning about the, how powerful that covenant was? Because that covenant is what holds you as a son. Which means it's immovable. Now, if you don't believe it, that's your problem. God did everything to make it true. The moment you step into it by faith and begin to walk it out, everything becomes real. It all makes sense. In fact, Christianity doesn't make sense without Jesus. Well, I thought Christianity is about Jesus. No, modern-day Christianity is about us. If you're a son, prove it. That's what the first temptation basically was. If you're a son, show me. Take these stones and make them bread and fulfill your flesh. Show me you're a son. I really hate the devil. You know what I'll tell him now? I don't owe you anything. I don't have to perform for you. I don't have to play tricks with you. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to do anything for you. I don't owe you anything. I don't have to prove to you who I am. Somebody walks up to my kids, prove to me that, that he's your father. What? I suppose Christians are still waiting for their spiritual DNA test to come in the mail. <coughs> Let me just tell you, the results are in. You're his son. The devil does not want you to believe who God made you to be. Because if he can collapse that, then everything else falls apart. Listen, you can't know God until you know yourself. That's another heretical thing that people want to crucify me for until I explain it. So you were made in his image. True or not? Right? How did you know God as healer? Because you knew yourself as sick. How did you know Jesus as Savior? Because you knew first yourself as lost. How did you know God as provider? Because you first knew yourself as one with lack. You understand what I'm saying? How we have become gives us a frame of reference for who he is. However, at some point that has to change from what we're not into what we are. In other words, you are in God's eyes by faith through the blood just like Jesus. But, 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 listen, if you want to bow to butts all your life, that's fine with me. I want nothing to do with them. There's only one king. There's only one definition, one rule, one God, one man, one guy who made covenant with me. And it's not the devil. It's not that sneaky little voice that gets in the back of my head and tells me how bad I am. Are you in sin? Then repent. It's that simple. 
Did you screw up? Then confess and come back to the Lord. Get out of the shadows. Step into your identity. It's not about what you've done or what you can do to make yourself worthy. It's about what he did on that cross and the fact that this New Testament cutting of his flesh freed you from the bondage of Adam and brought you into the bondage of God. The whole temptations here go on. If you're a son, if you're a son, if you're a son. That's what Matthew 4 is about. Then prove it. Then do this. Then do that. And I'm not going to get into all the other things because I don't have time about what those temptations mean. But just know it enough that the essence of the entire thing, that when Jesus showed up as a son, hell came running and said, I've got to cut this off. But if I don't cut this off, it's going to change everything. Same way he did with Adam. He cut it off. It changed everything. True or not? He couldn't cut Jesus off and it changed everything. And now here we are and he hates us just as much as he hated Jesus. You know, I heard, had God tell me this one time. He said, the devil hates you so much because he sees how much I actually love you. He's jealous. That's the same for you too. You with me? Yes. Romans 8, 14, 15, and through 19. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God. Where did the Spirit lead Jesus? To the wilderness. For as many as led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For if you have not received, you have not received the spirit of bondage to fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption. And by that spirit, you have the ability to call him daddy. Do you realize how powerful that was? Jesus, the Messiah, shows up on the scene and the first time he teaches his people to pray, he says, Abba. Nobody called him that in the Old Testament. Teach us to pray, Lord. I'll teach you to pray. First, you've got to start off with addressing him right. Not Yahweh, not Elohim, not the Ancient of Days, not Elroy. You gotta address him, right? You gotta call him by his name. What's his name? Abba. And then he said, What do you say? He didn't say your Abba, he said, Our Abba. Because <laughs> God wants his family back. And when you fully get into the power of sonship, you're going to be weeping and crying, and you're never going to be happy until Abba has all his kids. It doesn't matter whether you're close to him or not. You're going to be jealous for the ones that he doesn't have. That's ministry. Not collecting a group of people so they can hear you talk for an hour. Looking at their watches when you're going to quit. For you have not received the spirit of bondage to fear, you receive the spirit of adoption. And this adoption gives you the right to call him Father. Because all creation, listen to this, verse 19, all creation, all creation. How much of creation? All creation. This is not just the people. This is plants, trees, animals, squirrels, and chipmunks. All creation. All creation. Including the angels in heaven and in some, some senses even the demons in hell. They are all waiting. They are all groaning underneath the pressure of sin. They are all waiting for the manifestation of one thing. The manifestation of one purpose. And what is that? It's the release of the sons of God into the earth. And that's you. 
Somebody's waiting on you. Somebody's groaning for you to show up. They're waiting for you to get out of your pity pot and stand up into who God made you to be and stop judging yourself by your circumstances and your lack and step into their life and show them the kingdom of God. All creation waits with eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. (laughs) They're waiting on you to get out of your depression and your doubt and your self-hate and your past and your religious devils that keep you bound yet you still willingly serve them. For meager peanuts and a pat on the back from unjust leaders and you're a son. Do you need to grow? Absolutely. That's a whole different sermon. I wanted to establish the covenant with you here again this morning. First John 3, 1, Behold, look, see, open your eyes. Let it be revealed to you. Be astonished by what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called, what, Christians? The sons of God. And because of this, what? The world does not know us. Because it did not know him. But you know who does know us? Abba knows us. I have his DNA. It's called the blood of Jesus. And it's not some spiritual, ethereal thing. It's in my nature. Do you know how I know? Because I've been in a lot of scenarios where before I had the nature, I would have punched somebody in the face. And afterwards, all I felt was compassion and grace for them. That's my father in me. That's my father in me. Verse 21 of Revelation, or chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 7. Listen to this last verse. I'm going to quit. Whoever overcomes shall inherit a few peanuts. Shall inherit what? All things. How much? What does that mean? This is in Revelation. This is after the earth has been destroyed. What's left to inherit? What's what's left? Everything in heaven. Everything in heaven. Including the fullness of God. Whoever overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. (laughs) I mean, a proud daddy looking over all of us going, yeah. That's what we want, isn't it? I don't want to just hear well done. I want to hear him say, this is my Beloved son. I want him to stand me up in front of all the angels and go, look at my boy. Do you understand where this covenant comes from now? Do you understand how important this is? Do you understand that this is the basis of Christianity? You should have been taught this the moment you got saved. Instead, you got you prayed a prayer and then someone told you, you better do it all now, right now. Otherwise, the merciless accountant is going to knock you in the back of the head with a lightning bolt. 
Listen, you wouldn't even treat your own kids that way. What makes you think God, who is so much better than you, would treat you worse? You with me? This is the covenant. He's established. Like I said, Psalm 105. He's established an everlasting covenant for forever. What? That you are his son. You are his son that can never be taken away unless you step out of it and decide not to receive it. He's there at the adoption agency calling your name. Now, you can walk out the back door or you can walk into his arms. The choice is yours, but he chose you. And there's one thing about the Hebraic understanding is that when you get adopted, you you never can be disinherited. Never. The moment you're adopted, you have eternal right to all the treasures of the house, even if you weren't a biological heir. That's you. That's me. Amen? I really hope this shook something in you. I'd love to pray for everyone of you and lay hands on you and beat the demon of religion out of your head. I'd be gentle. But I would give it a good I'd give it a good go. But you gotta fight that thing on your own. You gotta stand up and protect that sacrifice like Abraham did and chase those birds away. Because there's something coming for your covenant. It's a doubt, it's a lie, it's an unbelief, it's an untruth, it's a religious performance. And you chase that thing away, you stand up and you protect that sacrifice and you let God walk through that blood. You let him take that blood and walk all over your life. And every footprint of Jesus, let it just be pounded into your heart and your mind. Stand with me. Just lift your hands if this touched you in any way. If it didn't, that's fine. You'll get there. He'll get you. Father, we thank you that we can call you that precious word. And we just let it escape our lips right now, Abba. And you went through such great trial to make us sons. And that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the spirit that dwells inside of us. It's the power to escape from death to life. It's the power that made us new. It's the power that brought us into healing and wholeness. It's the power that holds us and saves us. It leads us. It guides us. And we ask for you, Father, to be blessed by the life of your nature and your son in us to rise up and bless you once again that you might in this church and these people be able to look down and say, these are my sons and I am well pleased. We bless you, Father, for being so good and gracious to us. Establish these truths, Holy Spirit, in the power of your nature and your name that whenever the, 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 the temptation comes that we would side with the the, uh, fact of heaven instead of the lie of hell. I release a blessing over your children now. Let them come to you. Let them understand you. Let them see you. Let them know you. Open their eyes. Open their understanding. Jesus, the way you did to those two men on the road to Emmaus, that their hearts burn within them, knowing that you're walking within them, that you're fully Emmanuel, and you never cease to be anything other than that, because we are with you, and you are with us, and we are sons just like you. As we bow our eternal knee, Father, to the Son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten, the one and only who has made us a part of the family as heirs of God. Help us establish and know and and strengthen these things in our hearts. Let us grow into the full nature and stature of what it means to be a son of God. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, the Son of God, we pray. Amen.